Welcome to the Stone Choir Podcast. I am Corey J. Mahler. And I'm still woe. Today's Stone Choir is a continuation of last week's episode on the life of the Reverend Dr. Martin Luther King Jr., or Michael King, or Mike as we're going to call him. As we discussed last week, Mike was not a Christian. Uh, Every day of his life that he spent dealing with Christian subjects was a day spent in blaspheming the God of Scripture. So last week we specifically focused on the theological aspects of his life. This week we're going to be specifically focusing on what he did once he got into the pulpit. He pretty much immediately left out of the pulpit into political activity which was really what his goal was from the beginning. And he pretty much said as much in in his own early writings when he was in seminary. Before we get into the meat of this proper, I want to give a couple preambles briefly. One, as I said last week, we're not just doing this to beat up on a guy. It's not because we don't like his politics, although obviously we don't. The specific reason that this matters is that King is inserted into Christianity today. His beliefs, his morals, his ethics, his political views are pretty much sanctified by almost every church today. Your pastors, your leaders in your churches have almost certainly quoted him favorably on the high holy days of the black religion of this country. You will see his shining face with some meme on Facebook and Twitter and wherever else your churches use social media holding him up as an example of, here's a good Christian man, and here's a good Christian life, and here's what good Christians sound like. The sainthood that was conferred upon him pretty much by fiat serves political ends. And so today we're going to be talking about that, and that's kind of the second part of the preamble I want to give here, is that while this is an episode talking about political stuff, the reason that we're doing it is that fundamentally at some point, that that dichotomy between religious and political, between the Christian church life and the Christian civic life, breaks down. There are important distinctions. There are things that the state should do and that the church should do that should not overlap. And that's what the two kingdoms doctrine is about. It's not about Christians being stuck in one sphere or the other. It's about the Christian organizations that exist for the blessings of all Christians and all men by God are structured in such a way that when the state does something, the church shouldn't be doing it and vice versa. So the reason for talking about these political things today is that fundamentally calling them political is really giving short shrift to what's actually happening. Because when, again, when this man who we're told was, he was a pastor, he was a preacher, he was a good, peaceful, nonviolent man, he had a lot of good teachings He had a lot of good civics lessons, and if you disagree with those, you are religiously condemned. You are damned as an unbeliever and a hater and, you know, all these other defamatory things that are said about men who will dare to question the civic religion, which today is indistinguishable from his religion. So that's that's why we're talking about this. It's not it's not going to be it's going to be an episode we're talking about political events, but the important distinction is that fundamentally, if you let Satan just chip away and chip away at the entire civic life until you're just limited to a couple hours on Sunday, you can't be a Christian anymore. And that's really what's been accomplished by so many of these teachings. So to begin, as I said, you know, last week we talked about his, his childhood, his college days, his seminary days, a little bit about his PhD days, and then very briefly when he was in the pulpit. We kind of ended there. 
and he lived another about 14, 15 years. So today we're mostly going to be talking about those years after he got his PhD. We're going to be talking a lot today about communists and about Jews and about communist Jews and about Jewish communists. That will be a recurring theme throughout this, which again, sounds political. I want to preface what we say in the rest of this episode with a brief excerpt from an article from The Atlantic from 2017. This is an article that was talking about the history of the Soviet Union as it viewed race relations in the United States, because I think this is a part of history that most people don't know about, and it's critical because as we're talking about civil rights and MLK in the South in the 50s and 60s, and then we are also talking about communists, if all you know about communists is from, oh, it's McCarthy and it's Hoover, and they were just name-calling and they were being mean, then you're not going to be able to put two and two together. And so I'm going to begin with this quote from The Atlantic specifically because it makes perfect sense in light of what The Atlantic is saying. Like, not our guys. They're not by any stretch friendly to anything that we have to say. And yet they're telling the truth here about this because, frankly, they're kind of proud. The Atlantic writes, Playing on racial tensions inside the United States was a Soviet tactic. In fact, it predates even the Cold War. In 1932, for instance, Dmitry Moore, the Soviet Union's most famous propaganda poster artist, created a poster that cried, Freedom for the Prisoners of Scottsboro. It was a reference to the Scottsboro Boys, nine black teenagers who were accused of raping two white women in Alabama, and then repeatedly convicted by all-white Southern juries. The case became a symbol of the Jim Crow South, and the young Soviet state milked it for all the propagandistic value it could. It was part of a plan put in place in 1928 by the Comintern, the Communist International, whose mission was to spread the communist revolution around the world. The plan initially called for recruiting Southern blacks and pushing for self-determination in the black belt. By 1930, the Comintern had escalated the aims of its covert mission and decided to work towards establishing a separate black state in the South, which would provide it with a beachhead for spreading the revolution to North America. So... As we're talking about communists today, and we're talking about stuff that seems political, you need to keep in mind that as early as 1928, just 10 years after the Jewish communist revolution in the Soviet Union, where they murdered the Russian rulers and replaced them with their own people, within 10 years they had correctly identified that using racial divisions in the United States was going to be a key fracture point to A, advance the goal of spreading communism in the United States, and B, diminishing the United States' political power. And so all the things we're going to say today, just keep in mind that 20, 30 years later, the Soviet Union, when they were deciding how to destroy America, they decided, let's use blacks in the South to spread communism. So when we say later on there are communists in the South (laughs) using blacks against the United States government, that's not just us name-calling. That's literally what the plan was. And so if you can put those two and two together it gets a little bit easier to take what we're saying at face value. And like, you don't, need, you don't need to believe any of this. You can go research for yourself. These are all just historical facts. So just keep in mind, when we're talking about communists in the South, they had already decided in 1928 that this was the plan they wanted to enact. And so we'll start with a little bit of context just to give you an idea of where it is that we're beginning or picking up this narrative with regard to MLK. And that is in 1954, in September of that year, 
he became pastor of Dexter Avenue Baptist Church in Montgomery, Alabama, and the city is relevant here. As mentioned, he didn't really spend over much time as an actual pastor. He was really more interested in the civil rights movement. And so in 1955, in December, of course, that is when we have the Montgomery bus boycott. That was coordinated and organized by the organization called the Montgomery Improvement Association, which was organized and basically began its life on December 5th, and MLK was made the head of it the same day. That is the day that they were going to originally have the bus boycott. It was meant to be one day. It wound up being over a year. And there's a lot that follows on from that. We'll get into more of those facts shortly. But it's worth noting that this didn't actually begin with the Montgomery Improvement Association. It began years earlier with an organization called the Women's Political Council. That was founded by Mary Fair Burks, who was head of the English department, actually, at Alabama State. She resigned. There's some questions about whether or not it was really a resignation or a forced resignation. Resignations often are not voluntary. And she did that because she was an activist and she was involved with a number of other activists at the school who had been dismissed specifically because of their, in this case, yes, Marxist activism. But of course, when you think of the bus boycott, there's a name that is going to come to mind immediately, and that's going to be Rosa Parks. And the reason Rosa Parks comes to mind is because in your history books, most likely you were taught that Rosa Parks was the one that sparked this. To some degree, that's true. To some degree, it's not. Because there had been a number of blacks who had been arrested over the years for violating the laws in place with regard to public transportation. However, those who wanted to push for the boycott wanted to pick the perfect plaintiff. This is plaintiff shopping. This is something that attorneys do. It's not always permissible how it's done, but it's not always impermissible. But at any rate, it points out that this bus boycott was very much a planned matter. This was not a spur of the moment. This was not, you know, Rosa Parks was tired. I've heard people say that over the years. And she flatly refutes that in her memoirs, incidentally. But to go back to the actual bus boycott here and the facts of what happened, the driver in this case was James Blake. And actually, Rosa Parks and James Blake had interacted earlier along the same lines, because 12 years earlier, she had refused to sit in the back of the bus and had been confronted by James Blake, this same driver. At that point, she got off the bus. She was not removed from the bus. She got off of her own accord. So this is 12 years later, and this is when the bus boycott and really MLK's real activism begins. I think the important thing to note as we're going along and mentioning all these disparate little seemingly friendly-sounding organizations like the Women's Political Council, the Montgomery Improvement Association, how could you possibly object to anything that a group like that would ever do? Once you observe and learn how the left works, you'll find that this is exactly how it works. They will set up an entire brand new organization created from whole cloth with a set goal in mind that will not be the goal that is the stated goal of the organization. You know, Montgomery Improvement Association. That sounds like the nicest thing in the world. Who wouldn't want Montgomery to improve? However, when you start unraveling 
who was behind it, who was financing it, who was organizing it, what were their plans going in, and then what did they do as soon as they hit the ground, it becomes very clear that their intentions went far beyond improving Montgomery. And so we're going to mention a bunch of different groups like this, just little organizations. You know, It's happening today in our own church in Missouri City. You have Lutherans for Racial Justice. They appeared fully formed within a few weeks of George Floyd's suicide. And everyone's saying, well, you know, they're Lutherans and they want racial justice. Well, that sounds, you know, if you know a little bit, you think, you know, that's probably bad news because only bad people talk about racial justice, incidentally, starting in the 50s with these people. But if you're not really paying attention and you just see a new group pop up, you think, oh my, there's a groundswell. There's, you know, it's not astroturfed. It's a natural upwelling of the people in pursuit of some particular goal. And so all these seemingly disconnected organizations with completely innocuous names, they're all effectively fronts. And when you call something a front, sometimes there's a very deliberate, specific roadmap behind it. And sometimes it's spontaneous. You know, for example, the the Antifa blog that was set up to dox Corey and me sprang into existence for the sole purpose of assassinating our character. That's the only reason it exists. They the people existed before, but the new brand that they created was created for that specific purpose. So they spring up, they do it, and then you know later on they'll just walk away from it because there's no investment in the organization. So a lot of these groups, you know, like the Women's Political Council, I don't know if it's still around, it's probably not. And it wasn't just that time passed, it was that in that moment it had served its purpose. So when you hear these names, keep in mind that if you were doing this stuff because you're an honest person, you're a Christian, you would stick to your principles and you would apply them to whatever you're doing. You cannot give that benefit of the doubt to these organizations. When they're playing these shell games with organizations that let them mask funding and mask organizers, the reason for that is that it seems spontaneous when it's actually all coordinated. And the names are always a dead giveaway for anyone who's familiar with how the left works. They always sound like this. Hence why, of course, you have the People's Republic of China. They name them in ways that, like you said, sound positive. It sounds like something you couldn't possibly oppose, but then you look into what they're actually doing. And so to continue with that particular theme... The husband of Rosa Parks was Raymond, and he was a member of the NAACP, which of course is the National Association for the Advancement of Colored People. Apparently they're still allowed to use that term. She did not initially join the NAACP because her husband expressed some reservations or concerns about her safety. Whether or not those were genuine, one could debate, but she did eventually join the NAACP in 1943, so she's already an activist more than a decade before this happens. And she also had a history of violating the various laws in the South related to segregation. So this was not the first instance of her just being tired and refusing to give up her seat. That narrative is totally false. Beyond that, she was actually specifically trained by communists as a political activist, as an agitator. And she was trained at what was then called the Highlander Folk School. And that was in August of 1955, just shortly before this bus boycott, which started in December. Incidentally, I looked it up and surprisingly, this school still exists. It's only a half hour from where I live, which is interesting. It's now called the Highlander Research and Education Center. Still a socialist, far left, communist 
think tank, as it were, training agitators and advocating for the sort of policies you would expect. There are some notable people involved in this school. A couple of them would be Miles Horton and his wife, Zilfia. The reason she is interesting here is that she is the one who adapted a Christian hymn to create the song We Shall Overcome, which of course became the sort of anthem of the civil rights movement. There are a lot of individuals who wind up connected to this school, as it is called. Now, Rosa Parks never officially became a member of the Communist Party, and you will see that in some of the individuals as we go through this history. Some of them become members, some of them don't become members. Her husband was a member, and she attended meetings. So whether or not she was officially a member of the Communist Party hardly matters. It may have been her husband who introduced her to the Communist Party. It may have been another that's not particularly clear. But what is clear is that most likely her husband became involved with the Communist Party in the 1930s when the NAACP was raising funds to appeal the convictions in the case that was mentioned in the opening, the Scottsboro Boys, which was a gang rape case involving a group of blacks and two white women. The Communist Party agitated along with the NAACP to get the convictions overturned and helped the Communist Party helped raise funds. This was largely organized by the group called International Red Aid. Now what the International Red Aid is, they deliberately use the name as really sort of a pun because they called themselves a version of the Red Cross, but for political prisoners and political activists. And of course, red is also associated with communists. We have the colors reversed in the U.S. That is because a newspaperman decided that he didn't want to associate the left with communism in the U.S., so the colors got switched and it stuck. It's dumb, but that's just the way it is in the U.S. Typically, conservatives are actually blue in most of the world. But at any rate, the International Red Aid was one of the revolutionary organs of international communism. It was, in fact, started by the Communist International in 1922. But to get back to Parks, we pointed out in the opening that many of these individuals have basically become a sort of saint in a new religion. And toward that point, Parks is commemorated in five states, at least. There may be more now, but she is commemorated in California, Michigan, Ohio, Oregon, and Texas. So whatever you may think of Texas as being a conservative state, perhaps reconsider that on some counts. As for Parks in her later life, she became even more of an activist. She got involved in the Black Power Movement. She advocated for murderers and rapists, arsonists, and various other criminals through her various organizations with which she involved herself, or in some cases started. She founded the Detroit chapter of the Joanne Little Defense Committee, which that organization is notable. You may even recognize this name. They defended Angela Davis, who is an open Marxist and a professor at UC Santa Cruz. They defended her, I believe that was on a murder charge. To expand on Angela Davis, for those who are mercifully heretofore not familiar with her, she lived in the USSR, 
longtime member of the Communist Party, deeply involved in far-left agitation, communist politics, and she has been frequently accused, perhaps reasonably, of engaging in calls for political violence. These are the sorts of individuals who were involved from the very beginning of this. Well, most people, when you hear the name Rosa Parks, you think of the, the hagiography. Poor old woman, tired feet, made to sit in the back of the bus. She objected because why shouldn't she be allowed to? And then maybe if you knew later on in her life that she was politically motivated to be an activist, well, of course. Suddenly she realized how bad racism was and she wanted to devote her life to fighting it. That's an easy story to buy if you don't pay any attention, and that's what they're counting on. They're counting on all of us being stupid and not having any interest in figuring out where any of this stuff came from. You know, fundamentally, this is a genealogy of ideas episode. What is the genealogy of these people and their ideas and their supporters and the organizations that they were in? Because the actual Rosa Parks, as, as Corey's just laid out, was effectively a communist agitator. And it doesn't matter whether or not she was a Communist Party member, because as, as I mentioned in the intro, as it popped up again here with the, um, the Scottsboro boys, this was the playbook. This was literally the Soviet Union's communist playbook. They wrote it down in the 20s and 30s, and then in the 40s and 50s, they did it. So there's a direct line between the political goals of communism to overthrow you, the United States and all these nice old black people in the South having sore feet and just wanting to be left alone. And if you don't pay any attention, you don't see the connection between the two. And when someone tells you there's a connection, typically all you're going to hear is people shouting and say, you're racist, you're whatever. Like, it's just they want to cancel you because if you're not canceled and people hear you're out, they're like, oh, wow, you can go read for yourself. Like I said, you know, the the Atlantic article on many articles when they describe these things today, looking backward, they don't hide these connections because there's no longer any concern to be ashamed. And the reason for that is that communism, A, we think is dead because we don't fundamentally understand what it is. We'll be doing a future episode specifically on that. So we're we're kind of jumping in the middle of you know the 50s and 60s. I think we'll probably have to do an, an episode on the civil rights movement at large because there's much more to it than just these people, particularly MLK. And then we'll have to deal with communism both forward and backward in time because, again, it's it's theology. You know, the communist values. The Soviet Union was an atheist state. One of the very first things they did was, A, ban anti-Semitism, which incidentally they just invented, and you'd be put to death for anti-Semitism in the USSR. And B, Christianity was made illegal almost simultaneously, and you would be executed for being a Christian. They tortured and murdered tens of millions of Christians. They starved them to death. They put them in gulags. They were systematically exterminating Christians. That was communism, and it's still communism. It happens everywhere the communism spreads up. And when we hear the term, we think, oh, well, that's just political. And some people even today in our own churches try to sanctify some of that. I mean, there's a pastor in the LCMS who literally says with pride, my Marxist, when he's talking about one of the laymen in his own congregation. That should not be the case in any Christian church. And so it's important to tackle where the theology ends, if it does, and where the politics be begins. And frankly, I don't think the theology ever ends, which is not the same as saying we want a theocracy. I think it's important as we tackle these things to make clear we're not saying theocratic rule is the alternative to this. 
We're simply saying that Christians can be Christian in all spheres of their life. And if they're doing that, it doesn't look like the life of Rosa Parks or Martin Luther King Jr. Before we return to the aftermath, what happens because of that boycott, there is another individual who needs to be mentioned here because he is one of the founders of the Montgomery Improvement Association, and that is E.D. Nixon. His father was a Baptist minister. It's worth noting because as we go through this, you are going to notice there are a lot of ministers, many of them Baptists, some Methodist. I believe there's one Episcopalian at one point. But there are a lot of men who are masquerading as Christians. Now, the reason they're doing this should be obvious. It's because it lends a sort of credibility. It lends a sort of prestige that they would otherwise not have. And we have some of this happening today. There are men who are very much not Christian and yet are wearing a collar. And so we have to be careful of wolves who are dressing up as shepherds. But at any rate, Nixon was one of the ones who was really one of the organizers of the effort to find a good plaintiff for the lawsuit that would follow on from the Montgomery bus boycott. Because, of course, from the beginning, that was the goal. The goal was to change the law of the land by creating chaos and forcing a court case. And so there were a number of individuals who were ignored, who had been arrested for violating the very same sort of laws. One was a 15-year-old student who was arrested nine months prior to the Rosa Parks incident. This was very much a planned endeavor. They knew what they were trying to achieve, and they set about doing so ruthlessly. Now, as mentioned, originally the boycott was meant to last for one day, December 5th, but it wound up going for more than a year, and it eventuated in the court case called Browder v. Gale. That was a U.S. District Court case in the Middle District of Alabama, and this found against the segregation laws of Alabama. So basically, this is one of the cases that forces integration, particularly in the South. The judge in this case was Frank Minnis Johnson. He would go on to oversee many desegregation cases, including desegregating the Alabama school system. The other two justices who were involved here was Seaborn Harris Lynn. He notably dissented, although on technical grounds, and Richard Rivis, who is not particularly relevant in this narrative. What is relevant is that this case was, of course, appealed, and it was summarily affirmed by SCOTUS, by the Supreme Court, on the 13th of November in 1956. And the holding of this case is that conditions created by segregation violate the equal protection under the 14th Amendment. That's the basic holding. And of course, that's always how we wind up with these segregation cases going. These measures are struck down because, well, initially it was found by the Supreme Court, separate but equal, which is Plessy v. Ferguson. This sort of overrules that to some degree, but of course that was really overruled by Brown v. Board of Education, which was the desegregation of public schools. That incidentally was a unanimous opinion, which is worth noting. We didn't have dissenting justices who decided to uphold the law. They all decided to overturn it. And so this is an extension 
to some degree of that. But to go into the facts of Brown v. Board of Education a little more, that was also an NAACP case. In fact, it was five cases that were sponsored by the NAACP that were combined into one case and then taken before the court. Another noteworthy individual here would be the chief counsel for the NAACP at that time, and that was Thurgood Marshall, who would later be appointed to the Supreme Court by Lyndon Johnson. Thurgood Marshall was a far leftist. There are many things we could mention about him, many anti-Christian stances that he took. One in particular would be that he was a lifelong staunch opponent of the death penalty. Incidentally, also one of the justices who played a key role in undermining obscenity law in the U.S. And so you will see these Marxist agitators and those around them constantly working to undermine civil society and the morality of society. One of the biggest ways in which the courts have done that is the changes to obscenity law over time. Now we could go through the history of obscenity law with Hicklin and Roth and Miller, but we're not going to do that because this isn't the point of this podcast. The point here is that Thurgood Marshall was one of the driving forces behind Stanley v. Georgia, which was the case that ruled that the criminalization of obscene materials was unconstitutional. You may not immediately recognize the problem with that case, in which Marshall actually wrote the opinion. The big reason that that case is a problem is that it was founded upon the grounds of privacy, a right to privacy. Now, if you are familiar with some other areas of the law, you may understand the problem here. The right to privacy is also how we got abortion. That is, incidentally, why we have pornography so widespread as well. It's all a ratchet. If you give an inch, they take a mile, and they will always work toward whatever the next evil is. And so, of course, from Stanley v. Georgia, we have now the Miller Test, 1973, which basically just permits obscenity. Our obscenity law at this point in the U.S. is a complete joke. The things that are banned are so egregious that we will never mention them on this podcast. The personal privacy angle is also how contraception was legalized nationally. That was another key thing to yes. abortion, contraception, pornography. Are, they're all part and parcel. It's all part of the same group of people. And although MLK was not himself personally an advocate of these things, it was all the people surrounding him in a, in a cloud. So he didn't have to because he legitimized all of these other moving parts, all advancing inexorably towards the same sort of goals. Well, he didn't care about pornography. He was much too busy with prostitutes. <laughs> Indeed. But as a follow-on follow from the bus boycott, MLK writes his Strive Toward Freedom book, which was his so-called memoir about this boycott. And he does this throughout his life. He does something that is agitating, something that is disruptive, and then writes a book or an article or a speech about it. Although it is not entirely accurate to say he writes because he used ghost writers. That is very obvious. I would hope the last episode made very obvious that his most famous speeches were written by others. We saw the sort of things he wrote. 
but moving forward in time to one of MLK's speeches, 1957, he delivers the Give Us the Ballot speech at the Lincoln Memorial. This is, of course, highly praised by the NAACP. Not surprising, considering they helped organize the event. The event is attended by a number of prominent individuals. One salient one here is A. Philip Randolph. And the reason that he is relevant is because he was the founder of the Brotherhood of Sleeping Car Porters and the Negro American Labor Council, NALC, which will be relevant later. He is one of the individuals who pushed for the March on Washington. He was an open socialist. He explicitly tied in his comments, in his speeches, in his public appearances, overcoming racism to enacting socialism. And of course, bear in mind that when we use socialism in this context, we mean the sort of socialism that the communists used as the pathway to communism. In keeping with the theme of a lot of involvement of supposed Christians and pastors, Randolph claimed to be a Methodist. He was probably an atheist, though. He signed a document called the Humanist Manifesto II, the second version of it. This was signed by a number of prominent individuals. Asimov, Isaac Asimov, for instance, signed this one. This rejected theism, deism, any argument there is proof of the afterlife, rejected and opposed racism, proposed an international court, supported contraception, abortion, divorce, and euthanasia, and supported quite a few other Marxist or leftist causes. Very clearly not something that a Christian could even contemplate signing. And of course, the nail in the coffin, he was also a pacifist. Christians cannot be pacifists. Perhaps we'll go into that in greater depth at some point in the future. Another thing that follows on from this Montgomery bus boycott is the formation of a particularly salient group. That group is the Southern Christian Leadership Conference. One of their stated goals in establishing this group was to, quote, redeem the soul of America, unquote. You may find that similar to things that you have heard from pastors and politicians today. You may think of those who say that racism is America's original sin. This is an alternative religion to Christianity. Christians don't talk about politics redeeming the soul of anything. That's not what politics does. And yet, that is supposedly what this group thought they would do. And you may think, oh, well, they have the name the word Christian in their name. Obviously, they're, no. Their original name before, well, I believe this one was actually Levison. We'll get to him soon enough. But the original name before some of MLK's handlers got to it was the Southern Negro Leaders Conference on Transportation and Nonviolent Integration, which is not only a mouthful, but nonsense and doesn't involve the word Christian. One of the reasons that this group is relevant is the individuals involved in it. And so now we'll run through a number of key individuals from this group. We'll start with perhaps the most relevant, although perhaps this man and the last one we'll mention are probably the two most relevant from this particular group. The first is Bayard Rustin. 
Rustin, notably, was a communist. More, he was a communist sodomite. He joined the Young Community League, which was a communist feeder group in 1936. He did leave that one because he became disillusioned with their effectiveness. And then he became involved with the Communist Party USA. He became disillusioned with them as well. And the reason that he became disillusioned with them is notable, because this happened with a number of the so-called civil rights leaders. When World War II started, international communism, understandably, shifted focus from trying to gin up racial hatred and division in the U.S. in order to undermine and destabilize the U.S., to attempting to get the U.S. to enter World War II. Because, of course, the communists would have lost World War II if not for U.S. entry into that war. These individuals became disillusioned with the Communist Party because they saw the Communist Party as abandoning them because they were focusing on the war instead of on these various civil rights issues in the U.S. And so he joined the Socialist Party instead. This man was also another one of the architects behind the March on Washington. To give a little more information about this man's life and the sort of character he was, he was arrested in 1953. He was 40 years old then. He was caught having sex with two other men in their 20s in a parked car. Later in his life, when he was 70 years old, he adopted his catamite and... The catamite at that point was 30. He took a trip to Russia, communist Russia at one point, which is another thing you will see with many of these Marxist agitators. Even if they don't publicly profess to be Marxist, they will take questionable trips to various communist states, whether it happens to be Cuba or Russia or China. They go there, of course, often to get training partly just as a sort of solidarity with their fellows in other states. He was also a friend of Norman Potteretz. Some of you will recognize that name. And later in life, he became a Zionist. And I guess as one sort of final point for attacking another idol that we may eventually get around to, upon Rustin's death, he was praised by Ronald Reagan. One of the things that stuck out to me in the story of Rustin is that he became disillusioned with the communists because they had been using blacks in America as part of their proxy war against the United States, against Christians in this country. And as soon as political need shifted, they got dumped like a sack of potatoes because they were never the point. What I found interesting is that if you remember the feminism episode we did a couple months ago, the exact same thing happened with feminism and slavery in the U.S. in the 1800s. Only this time, it was the African Americans in the pursuit of emancipation that was the primary mover, and the feminist agitators were piggybacking. And they thought that the revolution was going to include everyone at the same time, that liberation would be universal, that all blacks would be freed, all women would be freed, all children would be freed, there'd be just infinite freedom. And as soon as the emancipation movement got enough steam going that it was clear that there was going to be a concerted effort to end slavery, the women got left behind. They had been active participants. They had been key in many aspects. 
and they got dumped like a sack of potatoes because they weren't politically expedient anymore. It wasn't going to work if they were on board because they knew they could only tackle one thing at a time. We'll do slavery. This women's stuff just is going to have to wait. And that was really the advent of the open feminist movement as its own thing. They had to split because it became clear that they were not the principal reason. And so every time on the left you see there's some sort of what they call advancement of these goals, of their stated goals, it's always mercenary. It's always whatever is expedient is what they're going to do. And if they have to shoot their own people in the back to do it, they don't care. They, the communists absolutely dumped the African-American allies that they had on this, in, on this soil on the floor. They, just, they let them go because they had other things to worry about. And yet these people never learn the lesson that they're being used as a tool. And I think that's one of the hard parts about contextualizing when we say that men like Michael King, he was obviously a dirtbag in his own life, but he wasn't nearly smart enough to be the sort of tool that if we just said he was the mastermind, no one would believe that. But he was absolutely a tool in someone else's hands. And that's why it's important that it didn't matter if he was a communist member or if he particularly in person wanted pornography or contraception or any of these other things to be legalized because he was part of the same march and he was locked arm in arm with all these other people pursuing the same goals and one by one the goals get achieved and the people who are advancing other things either advance or they get dumped because as long as things are getting worse and worse the satanic animating force behind all this is gaining ground it doesn't care who gets destroyed in the process. So I just found it interesting that Rustin was you know, personally aggravated and, and offended that the, that the Soviet Union would not be worried about black liberation in America when they were trying to fight a global war. But that's, that's what we're dealing with. You have macro-scale geopolitical events that are over most people's heads and seem very theoretical. And on the other hand, you have things like bus boycotts. And it can sound completely harebrained to try to tie the two together. And when you look at the moving parts, sometimes they're disconnected because like in this case, the Soviets quit caring for a while. They weren't pushing that stuff because they needed different things from different people. But once the war was over, they came back around in the late 40s and 50s. And as Corey said earlier, Rosa Parks went to one of these schools that they were funding and pushing, just like Saudi Arabia has their madrasas training people up to overthrow their governments, different religions, but ultimately serving the same sort of evil ends. And so there's an ebb and flow to these things. And if someone can't come along and just say, yes, there was A, and then there was B, and there was C, and there's a straight line, and there was a consistent force applied throughout. No, it comes and goes because this is all happening in real time. And so as we look back on it, some of the things seem a little bit disconnected. It's simply because there were bigger things happening that were also moving different parts around on the board that weren't a part of anything that MLK was doing. When it comes to the gentleman who was the ultimate handler for MLK, we actually don't know who that was. We know the group that was really controlling what he was doing and, in fact, what he was saying. We will get to the intermediate handler, though, the puppet master, as it were. I see him coming up in my notes here after we get through the rest of those who were involved in this particular group, the SCLC. And so the next individual for this group is Ella Baker. 
Ella Baker was a Marxist agitator, but one of the interesting facts about her is that she was close friends for much of her life with Anne Braden, who was a Jewish communist and open advocate for anti-racism and for many of the so-called, or really modern, Marxist causes that we see being pushed today. And so, even back here, decades ago, a number of decades ago, we see the same sort of evil being pushed that is being pushed today. Jewish communist pushing anti-racism. Just go on Twitter any day and you will find the same sort of thing. The next individual is Charles Kenzie Steele, an NAACP activist. Basically anyone we mention at this point in this episode is probably going to be connected to the NAACP in some way. That's one of the organizations they all wind up joining in some fashion. Steele notably was also a Baptist preacher. You may be noticing a theme. Next individual is Fred Lee Shuttlesworth. He would later help provoke the Selma riots, which we won't really get into in this episode, but I'll put some stuff in the show notes for that. But one of the reasons that he is notable is he helped organize what was called the Freedom Riders. And now what the Freedom Riders did was they would deliberately get on an interstate bus and take that bus from somewhere where it was legal for an integrated bus to exist to somewhere where it was not legal. And so in other words, they would deliberately cross state lines in order to violate the law. Why this is interesting is not so much that they did that, because that's just what you expect from Marxist agitators. The goal is to cause chaos and undermine rule and order and the law. The interesting part here is that Robert F. Kennedy gave Shuttlesworth his personal phone number and told him to call in case he needed any legal help with this particular scheme. And so our own leaders who are tasked with upholding the law are deliberately, of course, undermining it. The next individual is Joseph Lowry. He becomes part of the reason for the case that becomes known as New York Times v. Sullivan. There are a number of other cases below it that turn into, ultimately, New York Times v. Sullivan. That is the case that basically permits the media to slander people. Basically, if you are a public figure you are going to lose a defamation suit. Because the standard is that you have to show actual malice, which is a very high bar. The general standard for defamation for a private individual is essentially just false information that is damaging. It's more complicated than that, but this isn't legal advice or a legal podcast. I'm not going to explain defamation law. The added, as I mentioned, element, the added requirement for a public figure, and there is such thing as a limited public figure, notably, so you can be a public figure with regard to this one area, or you can be general. So a politician, general public figure. A sports figure, probably more limited. Someone who becomes infamous for something in particular, limited public figure. But the added requirement is actual malice. You have to show actual malice on the part of the publisher. And if you're a public figure, good luck. Lowry is also an NAACP activist, unsurprising. 
Later in life, he advocates for homosexual rights, so-called, and homosexual marriage, so-called. One interesting part about this individual, and some of you may perhaps remember this, he gave the benediction at the inauguration of Barack Obama. You may notice a theme. We have a sort of state religion that is being formed here. And so the last individual for this particular group is Ralph Abernathy, another Baptist pastor. You may recognize his name if you read the news or have ever seen some certain memes. He opposed space exploration and he protested NASA a number of times. He's the one who basically said we shouldn't be spending money on the universe out there, space exploration, when there are poor people here. And so he was advocating for basically shuttering NASA and dispersing all the money to poor blacks. However, in addition to that little historical tidbit, one of the reasons he is a particularly salient individual in this narrative is because he was a close friend with MLK for many years, and he wrote a memoir that was rather revealing. In fact, he was roundly condemned by other associates of MLK. He was accused of betraying MLK's trust because he is one of the ones who wrote about MLK's constant cheating. And also, he confirmed the FBI narrative that MLK spent his last night on Earth cheating with two women, and also beating a third woman. So this is not just the FBI, this is also one of MLK's closest friends who confirms for us the sort of nature of the individual who has been turned into a saint in the modern U.S. religion. But staying in 1957, briefly before we get to the aforementioned puppet master, and this leads right into him, in 1957, MLK spoke at the American Jewish Congress. Now, you may wonder why he was speaking at the American Jewish Congress. Incidentally, later on, the AJC becomes involved in the March on Washington. But the reason that he speaks at the American Jewish Congress, is that earlier in the year, he sent out a telegram asking various organizations for support, and Israel Goldstein, I am not making up that name, that is actually his name, who was then president of the American Jewish Congress, responded with support and advice for deliberations regarding the SCLC, which was the organization for which MLK had requested support at that time. A quote from his speech at the AJC. My people were brought to America in chains. Your people were driven here to escape the chains fashioned for them in Europe. Our unity is born of our common struggle for centuries, not only to rid ourselves of bondage, but to make oppression of any people by others an impossibility. This is just another instance where you will see very close connections between MLK and various Jewish individuals, particularly Jewish communists. And yes, Israel Goldstein was in fact a Marxist. Moving forward to 1958, we have another speech by MLK at an AJC conference, this one their biennial conference. And here is the individual whose name you should truly know. He is at least the intermediate puppet master 
for MLK and a number of other so-called civil rights figures. He acts as a go-between between international communism, particularly in the USSR, and Marxist agitation, communist agitation in the U.S., and that man is Stanley Levison. He was MLK's contact at the AJC. Stanley Levison was a Jewish attorney from New York. He is one of the individuals, the key individual in fact, who helped raise funds for the earlier Montgomery bus boycott. He is the one who ran the day-to-day operations of MLK's movement. He was the administrator. The FBI at the time had long known that Levison was a communist, had known that he funneled money from international communism into groups in the U.S. to sow chaos. And so he was surveilled. Part of the reason the FBI began surveilling MLK was MLK's close relationship with Levison. To give you a little bit of an idea of the sort of man Levison was, he was one of the individuals who helped support the defense of Julius and Ethel Rosenberg. You should know those names. They were two traitors who were executed, two Jewish communists who were executed for stealing nuclear secrets. To be fair, they would be traitors if they were Americans, but in fact, they were serving their home country. They were, they were Soviet. The fact that they happened to be here didn't change anything. So it's, yes, they, they, were, they were murdered. They, they were executed. It wasn't murder. It was a just execution for treason. Uh, but they were serving their true master. They didn't betray anyone because they were never here to be a part of America. They were here to help bring it down. And that's the case throughout much of the history of 20th century espionage, particularly atomic espionage. Over and over, you will find that wherever there were Jews who had access to this stuff, not at the highest level, because as we all know, the Manhattan Project was itself almost entirely a Jewish project. And many of them were, well... They wanted to create the bomb for Europe, not for Asia, but it just so happened that it, it needed to be used in Asia because we had already won the war in, in Europe by the time they'd finished it. But it's not that every Jew who is a member at a high level of the industrial, the in military industrial complex acted in a treasonous fashion, but very frequently when you run down the people who are committing slightly lower levels of espionage, they're almost invariably genetically linked back to their Jewish family in Russia. That's over and over again. We see that to this day. Many of the people who were accusers against Trump from within the military and elsewhere, over and over, it's Russian Jews, Ukrainian Jews. At some point, the pattern means something. And that's not to say that it's a Jew, we should dislike them. It's to say, when almost everyone who's doing this sort of thing has the same ethnic background, at some point it's worth noticing the pattern. And that's why we're explicitly pointing this out to say over and over, whenever a Jew shows up in these stories, it's doing something that's contrary to the interests of America. And as we get further along into this series of episodes, I'll I'll tell you folks who are listening, at some point we may cross the line for some of you where you will think, I used to like those Stone Choir guys, but they've gone too far. I can't abide by any of this. I, I'm not going to listen anymore. I would hope that if and when you reach that point, that rather than just turning it off mid-episode, you would, at least for another episode or two, become a hate listener. Uh, we have quite a few hate listeners to this podcast who 
feverishly tune in every week so they can be just completely outraged at the things that we say. If we cross one one of your red lines when we're dealing with these hot button subjects, I would just encourage you to consider the fact that we're applying the same level of rigor to that subject, whatever it is, as we do to every other subject we've ever discussed. So if your red line is crossed by one of the comments that we make, keep listening and then prove us wrong in your own mind. You don't need to send us hate mail. We, we get plenty of that. But you know, if you want to, fine. I'm not saying you have to answer to us. I'm simply saying if we say something that you're like, that is completely unforgivable, go do the research yourself and see if we lied to you. You might not like the conclusion, but frankly, you no one's entitled to his own facts. Things are either true or false. And so as we give this, you know, the rest of this episode is going to read like the Tel Aviv phone book. That's not a coincidence. It's it's what actually happened. And I think at some point, any honest person has to say, this seems a bit disproportionate. And a lot of the social conditioning that's emerged since the 50s and 60s, frankly, it's specifically to make sure that if someone says these things, they do get shut down mentally. There, there's a mental block. It's like an emergency fire door that as soon as the alarm goes off, it just drops and people can no longer interact or communicate or anything. So most Stone Choir listeners, you, you're smart enough to be able to engage with things even if you don't necessarily like them. If you hate something we say, just for a little while longer, keep engaging with it because I will tell you in all sincerity, one, we're not lying. And two, if you're willing to engage with the thing that you find upsetting, you're going to learn something because what we're telling you is factual. You may disregard our conclusions, but the facts can't be argued. And so we believe that this pattern that is not emergent at this point, it's inescapable, that it is a significant pattern and that there's something to it. And we'll be doing future episodes where we specifically talk about how that pattern emerged and why it matters for Christians and for a Christian nation. If a certain ethnic group is continuously stealing secrets like atomic secrets, maybe that ethnic group shouldn't have access to atomic secrets. That's a perfectly reasonable question to ask. You know, if, if every time you executed someone for treason, it was an Irishman, at some point you'd ask, what's going on with these Irish? There's no one who gets a special out. And the narrative of the 20th century has provided a special out for a certain group. And so that doesn't scare us. We're willing to tackle these things. So this is another blasphemy episode. We're going to blaspheme some things that people don't like. It's not to be scandalous or, or shocking. It's just, these are facts. Stanley Levison was a communist. Stanley Levison ran Martin Luther King for a decade, ran him like a puppet. And like, that's not just us saying it. It's his own biographers and others widely hold that view. They'll phrase it differently. But, you know, Coretta Scott King and all of his other family members after he was killed, they credited Levinson for the trajectory of his career. So when we credit Levinson for the trajectory of his career, we're in agreement with everyone who was there on the ground as it happened. When it comes to the theft of nuclear secrets, there's basically one exception to the Jewish rule. And for anyone who is familiar with political science, the name should immediately come to mind. A.Q. Khan, who is the... Well, it depends on how you define your terms, either Indian or Pakistani, because he was from an Indian family, but emigrated to Pakistan because he was Muslim. But at any rate, he is the one responsible for stealing nuclear secrets largely from Europe and then proliferating them basically all over the world. 
he is the reason we have such an immense problem with nuclear arms in certain parts of the world. We have a problem with nuclear arms in... Basically, there were a number of stages. You had the U.S. first, then the USSR and a couple others. Then you had India, Pakistan, North Korea, etc. The second one, that second wave of expansion, is due to Jewish infiltration and theft of nuclear secrets. The third one is largely due to AQ Khan. But the second point that I wanted to make here is another tangential point. I did promise I would say something nice about the Irish other than they make good beer. One of the organizations that is salient throughout all of this is the AFL-CIO. Unions in particular play an outsized role when it comes to civil rights and socialism and communism, in large part because they were infiltrated, because they were seen as a very good way by Marxist agitators to spread their propaganda. It was very effective. The AFL-CIO was founded essentially by two men in 1955. The first one is William Meany, who was an Irishman and a staunch anti-communist. And so he deserves praise for that. The second one, and here I will say something not nice about a German, Walter Reuter was the German co-founder of the AFL-CIO, and he was a communist. But to return to Levison... And we left off with the defense of Julius and Ethel Rosenberg, of course, which is why we were talking about nuclear secrets. So per the FBI, Levison was one of the chief conduits for funneling money from the USSR into various organizations in the U.S., including the Communist Party USA, and also including MLK. He gave MLK some untold amount of money. There was one point where he just gave him $10,000, Today, that would probably be in the 90s, so 90-some thousand dollars. I don't know exactly how much. I'd have to look up the math on that. But a non-trivial sum. Levison was also one of the ghost writers for MLK's books and speeches. He did not necessarily write all of them, but he wrote large parts of a number of them. And here in particular is a very salient fact Levison worked for MLK for this entire time with zero compensation. That should make you think about what he was attempting to do and who was pulling his strings. Now, Levison, of course, was connected to other communists who were also tied to MLK. Mention several of them here, two key ones. Hunter Pitzodell is the first. He was a member of the Communist Party USA and the SCLC. Odell helped with the Birmingham campaign, which was basically a campaign to just bring Birmingham to its knees to cause chaos and to set up additional court cases and media coverage and sympathy and fundraising, etc. The sorts of things that you expect from communist agitation. Now, with regard to both Levison and Odell, MLK was repeatedly told by high-ranking government officials, including the aforementioned Kennedy, that he needed to sever ties with these men because they were open communists. They were known communist agitators. MLK, of course, disregarded that. So even if he didn't personally find out some way, he knew because he was told multiple times this was the case. 
I think I read that in 62 or 63 that ML, that uh, I think Levison himself publicly stepped back from his interface with MLK specifically because of the wiretapping and the other pressure, but he continued his lifelong relationship with, with him in private. So the influence didn't change. He just ceased to be public about it. And that that's something that was in his own words. Yes, he exactly. That is exactly what he did because he wanted to sort of attenuate that connection to some degree so that MLK would continue to be this shining example of nonviolence or whatever and not have this connection to a known communist who is funneling money from the USSR into the U.S. to seed chaos. But the second individual here is Clarence Benjamin Jones. He was part of the defense team that argued New York Times v. Sullivan. He was also general counsel for a group called the Gandhi Society for Human Rights. This society is noteworthy for a number of reasons mostly because of the individuals who are involved. You may see a theme with that as well. It was founded by Theodore Keel, who was a Jewish attorney from New York. The other man, Jones, just mentioned him, and Harry Vochtel, who was another Jewish attorney from New York and member of the Communist Party. Other members of the Gandhi Society included Mordecai Johnson, who was the black president emeritus of Howard University, Although when I say black, I do encourage you, if you are listening, to look up pictures of this gentleman. Just go ahead and do that. You can pause the episode if you need to. William Moses Kunstler. I think you can probably guess this gentleman was Jewish. He was also an attorney, also an open communist, and incidentally, also from New York. Additionally, he was special counsel to the ACLU at the time. And the last individual, Benjamin Mays, president of Morehouse College. You may remember Morehouse College from the last episode. A sort of aside here, but salient in the narrative, and there's a comment worth making on it. In 1959, MLK travels to India for a month. Somewhat salient, we just mentioned a Gandhi society, but also salient because MLK didn't really act as a pastor, despite being pastor of a church. He spent his time being a political activist and then traveling to India for a month, and this made his congregation somewhat unhappy with him, understandably. And in yeah, 1959, when he got back from India, there was enough pressure from his congregation, from, from some members of it, that he actually resigned his pastorate. Which is interesting, because we're talking about 59. Now, he was... He'd been in the pulpit since 48, but he didn't graduate. He didn't get his PhD till 54. And so effectively, he was only technically in the pulpit outside of school for five years. But when you, you go back through the stuff that we've just listed, you know, we didn't talk about all the things that MLK was personally doing, but he was active in all these things all the time. So as Corey just said, the man was not a pastor. He wasn't doing pastor stuff. Basically, what he did, he went through a grooming school, a preparatory process, at the end of which he was declared to be a reverend, and that gave him entree into pulpits anywhere he needed to go. So anywhere in the South, anywhere in you know the Yankee North where he would be welcome as a, you know, as a black man in a white congregation, they would be very excited to have this famous civil rights leader come preach, in quotes. Functionally, 
the man was just a politician. He was only an activist. And so looking back to the first episode, we made it very clear the man didn't wasn't Christian and didn't care about Christian doctrine. The whole reason that he got into the pulpit in the first place was to enable a life of this sort of activism. And that's what we see. He he spent he spent so much time in his first five years as a so-called full-time pastor that his own congregation basically asked him to step down, and he did. And then the subsequent year, he did become an associate pastor in his father's congregation, but that wasn't because he was going to get, get back into the pulpit as a serious preacher. It was to maintain that credibility checkmark. He needed people to, to be able to, to address him as reverend and say, Here's a, here's a wonderful pastor from the South. He's here to preach to us today. It was a skin suit from the very beginning. And that's why, that's why we're talking about on a Christian podcast. A man who cloaked himself in the Christian faith went on to work for communists to do destructive things. That's it. And you know, we said before, is that politics? Is it religion? Honestly, I don't care. It's evil. It's insincere. It's not Christian. It's just bad. You don't need to sort of put it into the correct bucket to be able to know what to think about it. The man pretended to be a pastor so that he could do all of this other stuff. And that's that's kind of what this entire episode boils down to. Not only was he not Christian, as we talked about last episode, but he wasn't he wasn't a pastor either. The man didn't do pastoral stuff. He did get in pulpits and gave speeches. And occasionally he would talk, and he'd talk about God, and he would talk about Jesus, but not at the same time, because as we mentioned, he didn't think they were the same. He didn't think that Jesus was God or is God, but he knew that Jesus opened pocketbooks and Jesus would open doors. And so that word, that shibboleth that he would provide to actual Christians in some of these places was the opportunity for him to do what the communists had sent him to do. I guess if we mentioned that MLK spent a month in India and that MLK was an advocate of so-called nonviolence, then it's probably incumbent on us to, at some point, go after the idol that is Mahatma Gandhi. Because, of course, the nonviolence thing was his big argument. And it's as much of a lie as in the case of MLK. But returning to MLK, the topic of this episode, in 1960, he moves to Atlanta because he wants to become more involved in the SCLC, which was based in Atlanta, and so he becomes associate pastor at his father's church, Ebenezer Baptist Church. In 1963, this is where we get the Birmingham campaign, which was mentioned earlier. These are large-scale protests to disrupt the operation of Birmingham. The goal here is complete and utter chaos to bring the city to its knees and to force change, which sounds an awful lot like something that is not non-violence, so-called. Notably, in this campaign, they deliberately used children and young adults in order to garner sympathy, and that was 100% fully undertaken with the knowledge that the use of riot tactics would be in play because of what these protesters so-called were doing. The goal was to have children or young adults injured in front of the media so that they could take this to the world and garner sympathy. 
This was scripted beginning to end. It wasn't executed well, but it was scripted from the beginning. The mastermind, as it were, behind the use of children and young adults was James Bevel. You may be surprised to learn that James Bevel was a serial pedophile who frequently abused his own daughters and undoubtedly others. One of his daughters in the court case where he was convicted of incest testified that he began molesting her when she was only six years old. Lest you believe that these charges were ginned up against him, one of the items introduced to evidence into evidence in that case was a recording of a conversation between James Bevel and one of his daughters in which he admits to having raped her and states that he just wanted to have sex with her, not get her pregnant. This was, of course, admitted when he denied it, because then it is an admission against interest and it is permissible to admit that over a hearsay objection. A little legal aside for someone. And in that's the relevant for one specific reason. These are moral matters. You know, the, the accusation of racism is a moral accusation. It is an accusation of sin against a God. And that makes it relevant when men who will rape their own children will also call racism evil. We've said many times, if you as a Christian believe that something like racism is evil or misogyny or all of these other words that didn't exist in the 19th century, if you believe that those are sins against God, ask yourself how your morality perfectly matches someone who rapes his own daughters, because it does. Someone who says that racism is evil has the same God as someone who says that pedophilia is okay. And those, those two keep coming up with freakishly creepy frequency. It's really disturbing to me how often someone who comes after Corey or myself or anyone you know, on the right, anyone who's not afraid to say, actually, maybe human beings are not all just fungible economic cogs. Maybe God creates us differently and perhaps for different purposes. When someone says that and the person who's furious with them is also a child rapist, that's morally relevant because these are moral questions. If harming children in such a horrific manner is okay to someone and using a mean word about someone is horrific to the same person, at some point you have to ask yourself, is your moral compass broken if it's pointing the same direction as theirs? Because if you're pointing in the same direction on racism, how are they pointing in, the, in a different direction when it comes to something that's clearly much more serious? And yet these things keep coming up. And he's not the only one. Like This happens all the time. It, we, we talked in the past about uh, Jeffrey Dahmer. He was a sodomite, a cannibal, a rapist, a murderer. The thing that he was upset about when he was arrested and in the press was when he was called a racist. That was the only thing that anyone accused Dahmer of that actually offended him. That, that was against his religion. That should be a big deal to Christians. If you're still not over the hump of thinking that racism is not only not a sin, but it's actually talking about something that may be re relevant in the Christian faith, you should just stop what you're doing and, and work on that. That's why we did a whole series on race, and we did an entire episode on racism. Because don't forget, Martin Luther King Jr., Mike devoted his whole life to fighting racism. And he did. He fought racism. He toppled racism. The reason he comes up in our churches today is because he is the patron saint of anti-racism. 
He's also a communist. He's also godless. He's also a rapist. He was an evil, wicked man who's burning in hell, and he was anti-racist. That makes it relevant for every Christian today. If you can have a religion that has bits and pieces of Satan's religion, and then bits and pieces of God's religion, and you throw them all together, does God survive that? Does, does the true Christian faith survive contact with utterly wicked things? I don't think it can. And it's not powerlessness on God's part. It's unbelief on our part. If we're willing to take these wicked things from wicked men and say, yeah, that's mine. That's my new religion. I'm, I'm really passionate about this now. At some point, you're jeopardizing your soul. And it doesn't take long. As we can see from all of these men, these, all these men are evil. There's not a good one among them. And we didn't cherry pick. Like this is just a this is just a litany of the men in, in Mike's life who were all working towards the same goals that are by and large anti-racist, which, as we said at the beginning, was an explicit Soviet tentpole of the destruction of America. You bring up an important point there that I want to emphasize. We did not pick these individuals at random. We did not go looking for the worst ones. In fact, this list was almost exclusively made from the King Institute at Stanford. Just taking the names of the individuals the King Institute considers relevant in his life. So there are others who could be listed here, and they aren't. We listed the ones that the defenders of King say were relevant in his life. So this is the good representation of MLK. There's a worse one we could make. But return for just a moment to Bevel. During the trial, he also admitted to having had 16 children with seven different women. I will decline to draw any conclusions from that. Notably, the Jesuits were involved in the Birmingham campaign. They did, however, remark that the protesters were disorganized and, in their words, quote, misdirected. But the Roman Catholic Church has long had involvement in the so-called civil rights movement, and not just in the U.S., but in other places as well. And I am not just picking on the Roman Catholics, because obviously we've already mentioned Baptists and Methodists, and I believe there either is an Episcopalian in this list, or I saw him while I was reading. I may not have ultimately included him. But this same year, after this immense civil unrest caused by MLK, and men, there were deaths in this. There were individuals who were killed as part of this rioting. MLK, of course, caps this off by giving a speech about nonviolence, because how better to cap off a riot that lasts for days on end. But this is used as one of the reasons that the FBI finally wiretaps MLK and then consistently, consistently begins collecting recordings of his conversations with others. This is also when he writes his famous or infamous, depending on your point of view, letter from Birmingham jail. This is in part a response to mostly white pastors who had urged MLK. These are individuals who didn't disagree with MLK. They believed in the things for which he was fighting. They agreed with his goals. They just said, be less radical, be more patient. He rejected that, and then he ultimately turned that letter 
into his third book, Why We Can't Wait, declaring, I guess, a, a very high time preference. But also in 1963, we have the March on Washington, one of the more famous bit pieces acts in this entire saga. Officially, it was called the March on Washington for Jobs and Freedom. Unsurprisingly, they dropped jobs and also freedom. This was organized largely by Randolph and Rustin, two individuals mentioned earlier and noted specifically for having helped organize the March on Washington. There were about 200,000 demonstrators who descended on Washington for this march. This is, of course, where MLK gives his I Have a Dream speech. There are a number of notable participants, in fact, quite a few notable participants, come out for this particular rally. I will note one who has not been mentioned previously. A number of those who were mentioned previously, of course, attended this rally, but one who was not was Rabbi Joachim Prince, who was the president of the American Jewish Congress at the time, an organization we have mentioned a number of times already. He had notably been expelled from Germany in 1937, perhaps for similar activity which he is now engaging in on U.S. soil. This man notably joined the march through Memphis after MLK was killed. And so we're sort of coming to the end of MLK's well, timeline, as it were, here. But not necessarily the, the end of describing exactly what it is we've just gone over. What is happening here? There's a lot of disparate-seeming information. If we drew a full web, however, of the connections between and among these individuals, it would be so dense you would not be able to read the names. This is all connected. This is all organized. This is all part of a plan, in this case an international communist plan, to subvert the United States, to, to cause chaos, because the goal, in large part, for international communism was the destruction of America, because America was really the only standing power against communism. Europe had already been destroyed. Western Europe was busy attempting to rebuild still. They did not form any sort of real opposition to communism, to the spread of international communism. Only the U.S. did. And so the goal was to destroy the U.S., and one of the key arrows in that quiver, one of the key parts of that plan, was to use Southern blacks to agitate for, along social lines and along racial lines to destabilize the U.S., to force the U.S. to look inward to attempt to solve these problems to address the chaos, and therefore retreat from opposing international communism. But the final two events we have here, we'll just go through these two because really they're the most salient for this. 1964, MLK is named Man of the Year by Time magazine. Now in some cases, the Man of the Year is just the most salient Man of the Year, the one who has done the most or caused the most chaos, as the case may be. But here we actually see some of the building of the narrative of MLK as saint in the new religion of the U.S. That religion being essentially Marxism, but often called many other things. It's anti-racism. It's egalitarian. It's in favor of equality. It's all of these things. It's 
We hold these truths to be self-evident, that all men are created equal. That's what it is. Made into a religion with various tenets and various different cults. These days, largely sex cults, as we have gone over in this and other episodes. But it is a false religion. And if you're Christian, obviously you cannot participate in a competing religion. And so, of course, we end MLK's timeline with him being shot and killed on April 4th of 1968. We'll decline to speculate as to what exactly happened there, because quite frankly, it's not entirely clear who did what. The why is obvious. His corpse was used as a sled to push through civil rights legislation. And so it's very obvious why it happened and how it was used, but who exactly played what role is probably something that is known only to God and those who were actually involved. At some point in the near future, we will definitely be doing an episode specifically on the history of so-called civil rights in the U.S. One of the things that I hope as you're listening to the news and reports today in current year, as you see trannies and all this other demonic activity out in the open, the people who are doing those things make it very clear that that is the culmination of the civil rights movement. They say that so-called transgender mutilated men and women standing on the lawn of the White House, half naked, exposing their mutilated bodies, is the pinnacle of civil rights. That this sort of acceptance of this sort of behavior of these sort of people is the end-stage civil rights movement. And they're right. I, I think that's the hard part for a lot of Christians to acknowledge is that they're telling the truth. These people don't always lie. When they show you the absolute most evil thing that you can possibly imagine and say, yeah, this is, we're finishing. This is the finish line of, of what Martin Luther King Jr. started. If you like MLK, you want to defend his legacy. You say, oh no, he was, he was a good man. Judge a man by the content of his character, not this stuff. If you believe who Mike King really was, it's a lot easier to believe these people when they're doing these evil things and they say, yeah, we're on the same team as that guy. And as we said at the beginning, sure, he didn't go as far. He might not have approved of some of those things, but it doesn't matter because as Corey just said, his once he had served his purpose, he had one last purpose, and that was to be the sled that the rest of this stuff rode on to advance the ball further than he had in his life. In his death, he did even more damage in his life as a saint. And he's continuing to do that damage today in our churches. When this man is invoked as a source of morality and Christian virtue, once you know the things that we'd said this week and last week about the man, what does it say about your pastor, whoever is, is spreading that in your church, for him to believe that? To actually believe that this man who had an entire life against God and God's things he didn't get one thing right. He didn't get anything right. Everything he ever did was intrinsically evil, and it was in service to evil that was even greater than himself. He wasn't smart enough to understand that Levinson was handling him. He thought Levinson was a friend. It's funny, the, the discussions in, in the memoirs and the wiretaps, Levinson was a typical New York Jewish lawyer. 
he was very much invested in money. A lot of the one of the complaints from the FBI is that a lot of the wiretaps are completely mundane. They're this guy whining about nickeling and diming these other circumstances. And yet when it comes to devoting so much of his time and energy to King's work, never a dime was transferred from King to Levinson. As Corey said, that tells you something. There was so much value that this man who would be so cheap in every other aspect of his life was like, no, I'm going to do this for free. If you're being charitable and if you think these are good people, think, oh, wow, it was so important. Well, yes, it was important to Levison to achieve the goals that global communism had, that global Jewry had. This was their goal, was to use civil rights law as a solvent to dissolve American society. Yeah, we'll, we'll talk about it in the, in the civil rights episode, but I think that as we look back from current year onto the civil rights marches and the civil rights efforts in the 50s and 60s, it's very easy to say, well, yeah, they were fighting for what's fair, and black people were mistreated, and I don't like that. I don't want to see people mistreated. That's not a bad impulse. We wouldn't say that's a bad impulse. The question is, why was it actually happening? And one of the things we'll talk about in more detail, but I think it's worth mentioning here just because of the Telview phone book we've just read here, is that all of the laws, all of the rules, all the signs that prohibited Negroes in certain places also prohibited Jews in almost every case. The civil rights movement, we're told today, in retrospect, was about giving African Americans equal access to all of America's bounty. In reality, when those laws were passed, they also meant that you couldn't have social clubs, you couldn't have golf clubs, you couldn't have any sort of private institution where the real power in so-called WASP America excluded Jews. Because Jew is, first and foremost, an ethnicity. You can be an atheist Jew, and it's not an oxymoron. See, it's one of these things where someone you say, well, is someone Jewish or not? I don't know. I don't know if he goes to synagogue. That's a bait and switch that, that's been put in our minds. Someone can be Jewish and not have the Jewish faith. They don't have to be practicing to be a Jew. And frankly, it's really offensive to say to someone, you're not a Jew, because they don't wear the hat and go to synagogue. That denies who they are. I wouldn't do that. And, and yet, that's something that gets played on us when someone wants to say, well, I, I kind of have a problem with some of the political goals of this group of people. So as we go through the civil rights history in detail, just keep in mind that all the stuff that was presented as being done in the name of God, in the name of Christianity, in the name of African Americans, it achieved all the goals of these other people, of the Levinsons and the Kunstlers and all the others, without them having to be out in front. They never had to say, let me into your golf club, or your, your golf course. All they had to say was, you should let this black man in. And then when the civil rights laws were passed that basically made illegal individuals choosing with whom they would associate, they were let in as well. And I think that a big part of the fight that's completely invisible, and part of the reason the guys like Levison were doing all the work for free, was they got a lot out of it. Even apart from the global communist efforts, which you know for some people maybe is a, is a big ticket item to swallow, although as we said at the beginning, like even the Atlantic says, yeah, that's exactly what was going on. That's not, that's not secret history. It's literally the history of the last century. I think the overall theme of this and many of our episodes is don't necessarily take what people say at face value. If someone says they're doing something in the name of fairness 
or in the name of Jesus or whatever they know is going to sound good in your mind, look at where they came from, look at the genealogy of their ideas, and look at who else is along for the ride. Who are they partners and friends with, and who is going to benefit if they convince you to do what they're asking you to do? Because the convincing part is always in moral terms. It's this is right, this is wrong, you must do this, you can't do that. But the doing is what actually matters. You could choose to end free association as a civil rights act did for any reason or no reason. You would say, yeah, I think everyone should be forced to associate with everyone else no matter what. Okay. All they have to do is convince you of one reason that's going to work and then agree with them and then do the thing and then it's over. And so every time these things happen, they advance the ball and they move things a little bit further and then they restructure polite society. So for a man to question, huh, how did that happen? And what's up with all these people? Why are they all moving in lockstep across a century without any apparent coordination? And why is it always bad for my people? When someone asks that question, they're slandered and defamed in the worst possible terms in modern society, but they're terms that didn't exist 100 years ago because they're not moral terms. They're new political terms for political enemies. And it's okay for Christians and honest men, even if they're not Christian, to break free of someone else's labels of how you must limit your behavior. Behavior should be dictated by conscience. And as Christians, conscience should be dictated by Scripture. And when someone who's not Christian comes along and tries to dictate your conscience in Jesus-y sounding terms that aren't from Scripture, just say, no, I want no part of that. Let's talk about what's in the Bible, or let's not talk at all, because I'm not interested in hearing you out. I think that if we were to unwind just a little bit, basically back to where we were in the 50s, in terms of viewing these ideas with either a jaundiced eye or a welcoming one, the conversations would be completely different. And right and wrong doesn't change. It just doesn't. Right and wrong is eternal because it comes from God. And so as long as God is not changing, what is sin and not sin doesn't change either. And if our anchor is in the ethics of the day, it's easy to get bounced around by the tides of these things. Christians have to anchor our morality in Scripture. If God said it, it's true. If God forbids it, it's evil. Begin there, and everything else is simple. And when someone comes along and says, for 6,000 years, everyone was wrong. Today, we have a different idea. You just need to know that that person's not speaking in God's name. And once you figure that out, you can decide who is actually acting in your benefit and who might be a threat to your soul. Ultimately, a big part of this episode, and others like it, is simply an encouragement to heed the warnings of Scripture that a tree is known by its fruit. And we are living with the fruit of the tree of the civil rights movement. Because the fruit of that movement is transgenderism. The fruit of that movement is children having their genitalia removed in the pursuit of becoming the other sex, as if that were possible, as if we can undo what God did, if we can correct his supposed errors. The fruit of that movement is the incredible increase in interracial crime. The fruit of that movement is the fact that we have an enormous percentage of 
young children who are now depressed and some who commit suicide. And I could go on for quite some time. We all know because we are living through it. So if the fruit of the tree is poisonous, the tree is poisonous. And so if you wouldn't eat the poisonous fruit, then why would you defend the tree? If you look at the way the world is today, and you recognize that it is anti-Christian, if you recognize that the world hates God, hates his truth, hates his sheep, why would you support the very sort of men and the very ideas that brought us to where we are today? And there is a direct line from the civil rights movement to where we are today. And we will get into that eventually with an episode on civil rights. And if you go back through the list of the men and the women we talked about in this episode, you will find a lot of them who claim to be Christian. You will find Baptists and Methodists aplenty. Some of them admitted they were not religious. Most of them claimed to be one of those two. And yet look at their deeds. Or in the case of those who wrote, look at their writings. These men were not Christian. They did not believe in the God of the Bible. They did not behave as Christians. They behaved for all the world as wicked pagans. Virtually their entire lives in some of these cases. And look at those with whom they surrounded themselves. They surrounded themselves with atheists and Jews, and quite a few communists, and there is indeed a lot of overlap in those categories. Christians do not behave in that way. That's not to say that you cannot associate with sinners, because that's always the charge whenever we make an argument like this. Oh, well, Christ associated with prostitutes. Yes, he told them to stop being prostitutes. If you are a Christian and you spend your entire life associating with communists, there's a very good argument to be made. You probably are not a Christian. Because you should be calling the communists to repentance and then disassociating yourself if they refuse for a period of time. You can debate the period of time. But you cannot debate. The scripture is very clear. Do not even associate with such a one. There are injunctions in scripture with relation to disentangling yourself from open, impenitent sinners, because they will drag you down with them. And yet here in the U.S., we are told that we are supposed to revere these men, that we are supposed to pursue the same things they pursued, as if they were Christian. We're told these are part of the faith. Find it in the pages of Scripture. Find me where Scripture says, Racism is a sin. Find me where scripture says anti-racism is a good work. You won't find it. You will find that scripture says you have to care for your own above and beyond the stranger. You will find that scripture says that if you forsake your own family, you are worse than an unbeliever. And yet we're told by so many modern pastors, this is the sin of partiality. It's not. We've gone over that. Partiality is subverting justice. Partiality is not showing preference to your blood kin. 
That is simply behaving as a Christian. That's behaving as a human being. That's behaving as a man. Even pagans get that one right better than many modern Christians. But when it comes to these new, invented, so-called sins, there's a very simple standard. It has two steps. Can you find it explicitly in the pages of Scripture? And then, if Christians did not write about it in virtually the entire 2,000-year history of the New Testament church, then why on earth do you think that it is a salient part or even a required part of the Christian faith? If you cannot find it in Scripture, and you cannot find it in the historical writings of the church, then it simply is not Christian. Christian.